Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Well, good morning. Today is Palm Sunday. Historically, we celebrate, we commemorate this day as the day that Jesus rides in on the donkey, hence the Hosanna. They're hearing those shouts, they're laying down palm branches and their cloaks, and they're expecting, hey, this is our Messiah. He is rolling in. This is looking good. Um, and then what we know is as this week, Holy Week, continues, we know what Friday is going to bring. Jesus knew what Friday was going to bring, but nobody else. And so to think about how could you go from Sunday to Friday, from praising the Lord to, yeah, let's just crucify him. I'm thinking that's not too bad. I don't even make it to Wednesday sometimes. In Jerusalem, the Jews there, they made it to Friday. There's, there's days I wake up Monday and it's like I forget almost like a spiritual amnesia of the goodness of the Lord and the issues and the problems of life just come right back and they hit Monday morning and, and then I have to remind myself of who God is and what his promises are. Never that we get to escape and our life is going to be all happy, clappy, rainbows and unicorns. But we have a hope in Christ through all of that. And that's where my faith is in, not in the absence of struggles and pain and grief, but I don't have to walk through those alone. And so, again, Holy Week, we have the morning devotions and breakfast, 6.30 in the morning, upstairs. Um, and then we have Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. And then the three services on Easter Sunday. And I'm just going to say, uh, first service, Looking full, looking good, guys. Thank you so much. Um, and, and second service will absolutely be very close to the same. The, the big kicker, what we're having right now, is not really, I mean, this room is full, right? It's those four rooms over there that we call Cal, that we call Cal Kids. Say that nine times fast. Um, second service historically for us is, it is, we are beyond capacity with our little kiddos. And so we would love... If you could, if you consider Calvary Lake Ozark your home, uh, if you normally come to maybe the later service, uh, if you would come earlier just to help thin out the crowd a little bit, one of our concerns is that Cal Kids is going to get slammed next week. Uh, and we want that. We want to we make room for everybody at God's table. Um, we just might ask you to move a little bit uh, to make room for that. And so uh, we want to make space where we know we're going to have some visitors. We have extra family coming in, different things like that. And so if you're like, hey, what's an easy way that I could serve my church? <laughs> Stay home. No, I'm teasing. <clears throat> Did the pastor really just say that? No. Uh, we, there's three services, and obviously not everybody's too excited for a 7.30 service. Even though there's some of you psychotics out there, they're like, we need a 6 a.m. sunrise. We're like, this sun is not rising at 6 a.m., okay? But we, so we have the 7.30, um, the 9, and then the 11, or the 10.45. And so if you could, if you want to, if that would serve us really well. That would be a great thing. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. Any questions, uh, talk to Kim. Talk to somebody else that's uh, way smarter than me, and, and we'll get some answers to you. But we are in Matthew 24. This is Jesus' last discourse. This is his last teaching that we have. And he was on the Mount of Olives, and so they call it the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, it took Bible scholars time to figure that out, which I think is hilarious. 
Um, and so this is his last teaching. He's, he's done talking to the Jews and the religious elite. He's talking to his disciples. And they were, last week, if you remember, they pointed out the temple and different things. And they're like, oh, what about the buildings? And they're like, it's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be taken apart hand by hand. All these stones are going to be off. And, and we talked about how Titus, that Roman general, l- literally had the temple torn apart brick by brick, stone by stone, so they could get the gold that had melted because they lit it on fire, um, that had seeped down in between the cracks. And so this is fulfilled right there, what Jesus is saying. But they had asked a question, and in their eyes, they thought it was the same thing. When, when's the temple going to get destroyed? When are you, when, when's going to be the sign of your coming? When's the end of the age? They thought all of this was going to be at one event. And the problem is it's actually, no, it's all separate different things. And so as Jesus is moving on in the, the chapter here, and, and again, the chapter and the verse divisions were added 1,000, 1,500 years later. So if anybody ever, you know, when we, we're prone to take verses out of context, because those were never there. So you always have to look at them in context. So in the context, he's having, again, a Jewish conversation, and they're asking about these events. And, and what we can't do is try to insert ourselves as the church and say, oh, we're going to walk through this. Now he's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about that seven-year period because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. You have a choice before you, but that choice is going to have consequences. Now that does carry in for us. We all have a choice, but your choices will absolutely have consequences with that. And so Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, Jesus continues on and says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, so he's going back to the Old Testament there a little bit, standing in the holy place, which can only be interpreted as the temple, and then kind of in parentheses, let the reader understand, like, you take note as you're reading this of what's going to happen because people are going to be in that time. are going to wonder what's going on. Here's a book to guide them through that so they understand the events that are going to take place and they know what to accept, uh, expect. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And a loss for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world. Now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, and if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Nobody ever has that verse written up in their house. (laughs) 
It's written in red. You know, can you imagine that road over the nice fireplace? Been like, what verse that this warms your heart? That wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Ah, oh, I just love that, Jesus. Just gives me. And so, yes, we'll definitely talk about that verse. But going back to verse 15, again, like what we do, just walking through it verse by verse. So he's talking about how there's going to be a lot of destruction. He's talking through some of the events of what this tribulation is going to be. And he kind of gets to the middle point of this seven-year period. And there's, there's going to be, at the beginning of it, the Antichrist is going to be revealed at the moment that the church is raptured. And he's going to sign a covenant with the Jews. And they're going to let him rebuild this temple that's still not rebuilt. There is no temple in Israel right now. And they're going to be able to rebuild this. Anybody know what's on the Temple Mound right now? It's a mosque. I firmly believe that the Antichrist will hold back Islam, who outnumbers Israel 800 to 1, and allow Israel to rebuild their temple, allow Israel to start their sacrifices again. And they're going to love that. Because think, if the, in the, the core of the Jewish faith, they can't properly exercise their Jewish faith because they don't have a temple. They're in synagogues, but they need a temple. And so the first person in a political sense that's going to hold back another religion to allow them to fully exercise theirs, oh, man, they're going to sign on the dotted line. And they're going to love this. Be like, oh, man, we get to rebuild the temple. We get to start our sacrifices again. And there's, it's going to be called a season of peace. Even though that we know from the book of Revelation, half of the world's population is going to be killed. And then at that halfway point, that three and a half year marker that even Daniel tells us, that's when literally all hell is going to break loose on the earth. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. So when you see the abomination of desolation, he's quoting Daniel 11.31, where he's talking about the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to take away burnt offering. Well, what can you take away that's not established yet? If you walked into Israel right now and said, I'm going to take away burnt offerings. We're not even doing burnt offerings. What are you talking about? The best we got is a smoker and some ribs, which I'm a big fan of. But take away burnt offering, and he's going to set up the abomination that makes desolate. And so in the temple, in that place, he's going to set up an idol worship that's not just an image. I think it's going to be a living image. It's going to be him. He's going to set up his throne in the temple. Well, how can he set that up if there's no temple? Why do you think he allows the Jews to rebuild his temple? Because he needs to make the abomination that makes desolate. He needs a place to set up his worship. And that's what he wants. Satan has always been about wanting the world's worship. I mean, go clear back to the beginning of Matthew when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. What was one of the things that he said? Bow down to me, and I'll give you all of this. He's always wanted to steal worship. And that was the hard part. If you understand, uh, before Satan fell and he was just an angel, he, go back to Ezekiel a little bit, all of worship went through him to God was kind of a role that he had, but that wasn't good enough. I didn't want to be, I didn't want the worship to move through me. I wanted the worship to stop at me. Sometimes we struggle with similar things that we, we don't want the gospel to move through us. We want the gospel to stop at us, but the gospel was always meant to move through us, never to stop at us. And so that was, that was, he always wanted that worship. He wanted to be the center of attention of that. 
And so there's, it, Jesus is saying there's going to be this time that, just like the prophet Daniel said, there's going to be a, a setup of the Antichrist, and he's going to try to turn all of this worship to him, and it's going to be fairly successful. And then in verse 10, verse 10, verse 15, um, you see from 15, 16, 17, 20, like, how do we know he's talking to the Jews only? And there, it gives us a few indicators. Verse 15 talks about the holy place. Again, that has to be the temple. In verse 16, he talks about Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. And so we're even talking about the language there. Verse 17, housetop. You're like, what does that have to do with Jewish? Well, look at the culture. We, un we know archaeologically that Israel was in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. With the, there's a city there that they have dug up called the city of Avaris. And they, they wouldn't say Israel, they'll say Semitic people. But when you reference Semitic people, that's the non-religious way to reference Israel. We, we have archaeologic proof that Israel was in the land of Egypt. And one of the key factors is the houses that they built. They built the homes that they're used to, and they were flat homes. Egypt didn't build homes like that, but Israel did. You, they had a flat top to their house so they could go up and enjoy the, because it's hot out there. And so you wouldn't want to be in the house. They didn't have AC. Kind of like how I grew up. It was a pain. So we'd sit on the roof. No. But that's what they do. They go up and sit on the roof. And that was, that was very Jewish in its context because of this, their style of building homes. We know that archaeologically. We don't even need scripture for that. And so again, he's even describing that, hey, you're going to be on your housetop. Don't even try to run down into the house and get your stuff. No, get out and flee and run. When this event happens, when the abomination of desolation make this happens, run. If you're in the field, don't go for your cloak. Just start running. And then in verse 20, he says, I hope this doesn't happen on a Sabbath. You don't want to break the Sabbath. And so he's talking to Jewish people. This is a Jewish conversation. And so we have to understand that we are not waiting for this. The only thing that we're waiting on is for Christ to call us home in rapture. Paul looked forward to that event more than even his own death. And that's why we always have an, an imminence about it. it. It's about to happen at any time. It could happen before we're done this morning. We might not even make it to Easter. So if you already bought your kids the Easter baskets, you're out. Sorry. And so he's, he's talking because they're asking, hey, when's the end of the age going to come? And that's where he's describing these events. The tribulation is going to bring to an end of the age at that point. And so verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world no, now, no, and never will be. So if you look at all human history, if you look at every event that has happened on our planet, this, the tribulation, will be the absolute worst. And it's not going to win by like a nose. It's not going to be a close race. It's going to be like if I raced, you know, Usain Bolt, right? You're not going to need a photo finish on that race. Did I just hear that? Or was that somebody else? Did, did you hear that as well? Okay. I'm just making sure I'm not losing my marbles here. I thought somebody's sneaking up behind me, going to take me out. I thought, didn't think I was that bad, but okay, here we go. This is going to be the worst time. Security, blue team, go. No. I don't know what that is back there. Lord, strike them. <laughs> Sorry. 
where was I? What are we talking about? Go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're in Matthew 24. Usain Bolt. Yeah, how did we get there? <laughs> this is going to be the worst time in human history. It, it's, going to, it's going to eclipse anything that's ever happened. And look at our human history. Even look in our Bible. Genesis. The flood. Look at even modern things. World War II. This is going to eclipse all of that. We won't have to wonder, is this, is this the worst part of human history? Everybody's going to know. It's going to be so far beyond anything that we don't even have to guess. And that's why I know we're not in the tribulation, because I really don't know right now as we sit, okay, what would be worse in human history? But this is one of those things, when this, when this seven years hits, if we were going to live through it, yep, this is it. This is the worst it's ever going to be. And so, uh, you know, w within the church, there's a few, there's a couple main areas that the church really separates theologically. One of them is, I, I believe, in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's when theologies start kind of dividing a little bit. Um, another area, I believe, is eschatology, the end times. And there's differing views. You know, is the uh, rapture going to happen before tribulation, during tribulation, at the end of it? Is the uh, tribulation going to happen before the millennium, or is there even going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ? And so there's differing views there. And one of those, going to geek out just for a moment, one of those is called a preterist view, right? Don't, it, I looked up the word. I don't know this off the top of my head. I just whip it out. But preterist just means past. And, and a preterist view would say everything, especially here in Matthew 24, everything that Jesus is describing, all all end-time prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament by 70 AD because that's when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. So we're not waiting on anything. It was already done. So all of Revelation, all those signs and markers and symbolisms, all of that we could point to that has already happened by 70 AD. The problem with that is Scripture. And so they would hold that, but the problems with this preterist view is, number one, God's covenant with Israel is everlasting, Jeremiah 31. So some people try to say, well, the church is Israel, and so we take over all those spiritual blessings. But again, you go back to Scripture, and Isaiah says that there's going to be a future restoration of Israel. And for years, we heard that and thought, is this really going to happen until Israel became a nation again? Never would have thought that Israel was going to become a nation. Now they're a nation again in the 40s. And, and then lastly, it would mean that the destruction of Jerusalem would be the worst time in human history. If Jesus really means that, that all this is going to take place in 70 AD, he's saying then that is the great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning, nor will never be. Now, is that event absolutely horrible? Yes. I would not want to be driven out of my home. I would not want to see the center of my faith and, and culture being the temple being destroyed whatsoever. But I do not believe that that was the worst event in human history ever to be on the pages of our history. I don't believe that. And so we are waiting. And even Jesus says there will be so he tells us this is going to be a future event. And, and what I love about Scripture, especially when you get into the Old Testament and you're studying prophecies, you would see these, and there's going to be near fulfillment for some of these. And I think we see that. But then there's also going to be like a far fulfillment, like the fullness of it. 
And so you, it's almost like in Scripture, they give us a few hints of things that are going to happen soon as almost a foreshadowing of the fullness that's going to happen. And so when they, with, when they were reading Daniel and understanding the abomination of desolation, like there's been a few events that's like, hey, maybe that was it. But the other things didn't go with it. So if you think between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's actually 400 years. I remember the first time I learned that. I thought it was like next week, you know, like next week on the Bible series, this is what happens. I thought, and there's 400, like our country is not even 400 years old. And to have all these prophecies written and then fulfilled, I mean, just the birth of Christ. It's like, you can't fake this stuff. You can't make it up. 400-year gap in there, but there were still some events that take place. If you read a Catholic Bible, it has a few extra books. Uh, so if you're Bible thumping, highly recommend a Catholic Bible. It's a little thicker, a little heavier. Uh, it has a little more bang, a little punch to it. But the Maccabees talks about the history of the Jewish people, and there was a Roman uh, ruler, emperor, uh, named Antigus Epiphanes. And in this time of the Maccabees, probably like 100, 150 years before Jesus, he rolls into the temple. And he, he does some horrible things. He doesn't destroy Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy the temple. But he sacrifices a pig on the altar, which uh, even though we are okay with sacrificing a pig upon the altar, uh, that was not kosher for the Jews. And he forced the priest at that time to drink its blood and to eat the raw flesh of it. And he set up an image to be worshipped by him. And, and he is almost a foreshadowing what the fullness of what that is going to bring in the Antichrist. And so we're seeing that this is going to be a future event, that there hasn't been anything that has fulfilled all that Jesus is talking about. And even going further, like when he's saying that it will never be like this, look at verse 22. He said, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would survive. That that's how bad it is, that, that actually the tribulation being only seven years is a grace of God. That's kind of hard to think about. Same way that Noah and the ark and the floods was the mercy and the grace of God so that he would restrict evil, wipe them out. I remember in freshman year of high school, we had to read the book of Mice and Men. Have you ever read that book? It had a little little, was it a rabbit or a mouse that he loved a pet or whatever? And, and it brought up the context of a mercy killing. And even as freshmen in high school trying to discuss that, that's kind of intense stuff. But even, even at the flood, God is bringing mercy by wiping that because if he just let it go, the, the amount of evil that would take over. Even here, if the tribulation was going to be longer than seven years, no human being would be saved. It would annihilate everybody. And so it's the mercy of God to restrict this evil for a short period of time. Because we know that the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out. He's the restrictor. And so evil's going to go rampant, but there's a time limit to it. Because if we just let it keep going, no human being would be, would be saved from it. But for, keep reading, the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now we hear that word, elect, some of us get really excited. Um, this is why some Bible scholars believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation because of that word, the elect. And it, that word is used of the church in other passages, but again, context is key. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Israel in Isaiah 45, 65, even in Romans 11, 
The term elect is used of Israel. The term elect is used of the church and even those that will be saved during the tribulation. They're going to be called elect. And so it's just a term. It doesn't mean strictly just the church. Just like the word daughter doesn't strictly just mean one of my daughters. I could talk about one of my daughters, and if you assume and think, oh, they have to be talking about Kaylin, well, no, one of my daughters did a really good job yesterday in the gymnastics tournament. Well, if you run up to Kaylin and Ryan and say, oh, great job, you did so good yesterday, they're going to look at you goofy, because all they did was sit there. And yes, they did a good job sitting there <laughs> at the gymnastics tournament, unlike their dad, who needed snacks and fruit snacks just to get me through the thing, and a phone to be entertained. But that term daughter is referring, so you need the context in it. That's why we're having a Jewish conversation. So when he says the elect, he's talking about Israel, if anything, those that will be saved during the tribulation. He's not referencing the church. The church hasn't, there's only been two references to the idea of the church yet. It's still a mystery as a whole. So he's saying that for the sake of Israel or those that even would be saved in the tribulation, we have to cut short those days. They are not going to make it through it. And God still has a plan for them. So again, a Jewish conversation. And so you're looking at this and you're thinking, wow, this seven-year period, it's going to eclipse any kind of evil, pain, horrible, suffering, grief, wrath. Like, why would God allow this? Why would God allow such evil on our earth, even if it is for seven years? Even if it is going to be restrained so that you know, humans could actually survive this thing? Why would God allow? And sometimes we ask ourselves the same question now. Why does God allow such evil in our world? We look at things that happen uh, overseas in the Ukraine right now. Why would God allow that? We look at the atrocities of what abortion is in our country. Why would God allow that? We see uh, the sex trafficking industry that's just rampant in our country. Why would God allow that stuff? That's a hard conversation. I think um, that is one of the main questions that the church should answer well for the world around us. Because it doesn't make sense to them. Because the argument kind of goes like this. You know, if your God is all good, omnibenevolent, if he's all good, he would defeat evil. Yeah, it's a battle of good and evil. So if God is all good, he would defeat evil. And if, if your God is all powerful, he could defeat evil. Well, yeah, God's all powerful. He can defeat evil. You can even take it a step further and God is omniscient. He's all knowing. So he knows how. So we have a God who wants to, who can, and he knows how, but... Look at our world. Is evil defeated right now? No. And so they say, well, then your God doesn't exist. Because if your God really loved, and if your God really was powerful enough, and if he knew how, then why doesn't he do it? I don't believe in your God because I just have to look at the world and understand evil. And so when I get into those conversations, I always like to poke the bear a little bit. And it's like, how do you know it's evil without a standard of good? Because evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil can only exist within something that's good. Evil, evil is real, but it's not a real thing. It's a privation of a good thing. Think of like a, a moth-eaten hole in your shirt. That hole can only exist in a good shirt. A wound only exists in a good arm. You can't have just a wound. You have to have a good arm that it exists in. So evil's not its own thing. It's a privation of a good thing. Evil's like blindness. It's not just the absence, like a rock doesn't have blindness because it never had sight. That's an absence. But an evil is a privation that there should be good there, but there's not. It's like 
rust on a car, rot to a tree. It's one of the reasons I kind of tread lightly when we talk about total depravity, because a totally moth-eaten garment would be a hanger. So evil only exists within what is good. And so if we have that, why isn't God defeating that? Why can't we just have a world that is all good? Which is possible, but we can't have a world that is all evil because it only exists within something that is good. So how, why doesn't God defeat this? And so one, if God is all good, omnibenevolent, he wants to defeat evil. That is his desire. That is on his will. If God is all powerful, he can defeat evil. You know, if he's all-knowing, he knows how to defeat evil. But here's the key. Just add a three-letter word. Evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, one day, evil will be defeated. And that's what this story is all about. That's what his second coming is all about. This is God on war, not with people. This is God at war with Satan and evil. And he's going to be on battle with them, and he's going to defeat that. That's what his second coming is all about. And so if you're looking, we see, you know, as he starts talking about the return of Christ, you're not going to have to have anybody running up to you and saying, hey, I heard Jesus is here. Let me go take you. Or no, he's out in the wilderness. I'll introduce you. We're kind of good friends. You know, no, he's in the inner room. No, no, no. You won't need anybody to tell you, to inform you that Christ has returned. For those living in the tribulation, they won't have to wonder, they won't have to hear it on the news, TMZ, Facebook, tweet, whatever all that stuff is. Jesus says it's going to be like lightning that happens in the east and you can see it as far as the west, that the whole world is going to see the return of Christ, that no matter where you're at, it's five o'clock somewhere, same way, everywhere you're at, you're going to see the return of Christ. Don't ask me how that is because of the globe and certain, I think God can handle revealing himself and returning to this world that the whole world will see him return with the church right behind him. And so nobody should be deceived about his second coming. We know that there's a certain events that should take place for his second coming. The beautiful part is I don't have to worry about that because I'm going to be with him. And when he returns, I'm going to ride on uh, whatever color horse he gives me. It could be pink for all I care. I don't ride right behind him because as the church all we're waiting on is for him to catch us up with him or he calls me home and takes my life he's the author and giver of life i'm all right with it and so his second coming it's not a mystery that needs to be explained but it will be an event that everyone will experience that nobody's going to be able to hide from it nobody's going to be like oh i didn't know i didn't know and so i missed it if i would have known i'd have been ready no 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 everybody will know And so you get to that last verse. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. I'm going to give it to you straight, no chaser. I believe this is a reference to the battle of Armageddon. There's going to be a war that's going to happen in the valley of Megiddo. So uh, what's going to happen is in the tribulation, Antichrist, he's going to bring some nations together and have this kind of united nations together, not like referencing the current United Nations, but multiple nations come together as one. They're going to go to war against Israel in this valley, and it's not going to look good for them. And at the very coming in clutch, when they think there is no way out of this, almost similar to how Moses was standing between the Red Sea and Pharaoh behind him. God, if you don't intervene, we're done with. 
at that very moment of clutch. That's when the second coming is going to happen. So if you have your Bibles, go to Zechariah. So just go backwards. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Just go one more. You're in Zechariah chapter 12, picking it up in verse 8. And on that day, very specific day, the day of the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. The angel of the Lord, that is Jesus himself, Old Testament reference. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's what the battle of Armageddon is gonna be about in the Valley of Megiddo, is all the nations that come to destroy Jerusalem, Jesus at his second coming, is going to intervene and protect Israel. Read verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, this is Jesus speaking, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over his firstborn. Jesus is going to return, intervene on the half of Israel. They're going to look to him and see a crucified Messiah, and it's going to hit them. The one that we proclaimed Hosanna to, we killed. We missed it. The one that we were supposed to accept, we killed. And they're going to have the fullness of what they did. And that's where that national repentance of Israel comes. And they're going to accept him as the Messiah. And that's why Paul is saying in Romans 11 that all of Israel will be saved. Because at that moment, that's the Jesus that we put on a cross. That's the Jesus we were supposed to accept and surrender our lives to. That was that Jesus. Now go to Revelation, Battle of Armageddon. <clears throat> I wish there would be one movie maker that would make the Bible into a real movie because you could not have any kind of rating to it. It would definitely not be PG-13 or rated R. So Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, you hear a description of who Jesus is. And this is, uh, I, I think this is the Jesus that's ready for battle. Not the guy petting sheep, sitting on a rock with a little bit of a glowing light from heaven. No, this is a soldier, a commander on his horse. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Verse 14, in the armies of heaven, they're going to be arrayed in fine linen. That's the church. White and pure. We're following him on white horses. So there goes my pink horse theory. But I'm going to go with scripture on this one, so I guess I get a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron uh, rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, uh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Yes, Jesus has a tattoo. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, come gather for the great supper of God. Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to have dinner with Jesus. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free 
and slave, both small and great, kick down to verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That at the end of that battle, Jesus literally is going to stack bodies that the birds of the air cannot consume all their flesh. Why would God allow such a thing? Because we have to understand what God is doing in human history. A lot of times we look at the Bible and we think the Bible is about how do I get to heaven? And yeah, there's a part in there, but that is not the fullness of what Scripture is about. Scripture is about that God created the heavens and the earth together. And on the very few first pages, we see how sin that we brought in because we wanted to be like God and we rip heaven and earth apart. And that's where hell comes from. God didn't create hell. He didn't bring that in. That's what we brought in. And the whole story of Scripture is how God is returning and restoring back his good creation. Now, the beautiful part is we get to be a part of that. We get invited into that. But if we decline that invitation, and we can, we have the free will for that. To say, hey, God is bringing back heaven and earth. He wants to commune with his creation, his good creation, with us. But hell is not going to have any part of that. I think it was C.S. Lewis, I love this quote, that hell is the monument to human free will. That whatever hell, death, Hades, whatever the weeping and gnashing of teeth is, whatever that is, is for those that look and see what God is doing in human history and say, you know what? I don't want a part of that. He's a gentleman. Absolutely, you don't have to. But where the birds gather, where the corpses lie, the birds will gather. And this is God pouring out his wrath on the earth so that there will never be evil, death, pain, suffering in his good creation. And we get to live with him for eternity. And so God is permitting this evil right now in this tribulation time. Why? So that he can defeat it and destroy it. I come from a family of boxers. I got a couple pro boxers. Uh, they're retired now because they're old. But I got a couple of pro boxers that were in my family. And if you wanted to win championships, you have to get in the ring. You can't knock out somebody if they don't get in the ring. And so God permits this evil. God allows this opponent in the ring to knock him out. It's the same way. You can't defeat what you're not going to go to battle for. And so this is everything and everyone who doesn't want to be about what God is doing and restoring heaven to earth and bringing about his good creation. And anybody's allowed to be a part of that. But he is not going to allow hell to infiltrate and corrupt his good creation. And that's the beautiful part of the cross, is how does God maintain us, a good creation, but remove the hell from us, the cross of Jesus Christ, that all of our past, present, future sins are paid for, the wrath of God poured on the cross for our sins so that we are clothed in his righteousness, white and pure, that he could keep his good creation, but remove all that evil from us. And so God is restoring heaven and earth to live in communion with his good creation. And so when we read chapters like this and you hear that about just the evil and the amount that's going to happen and the battles on that, it's a book of hope. Because even right now we look at our world and think, how much longer 
is evil going to be able to live and survive on this earth? For a little while. But God absolutely has a plan for it. And he permits evil in our lives. He permits these bad things to happen. But one day, he will absolutely take care of business. And our hope is that we do not have to continue in that. That there's one day that I won't know what the weight of sin, I won't know what the weight of death, I won't know what the weight of pain and hurt will be on my life. I will be exactly as God wanted me to be in creation, free. That's the freedom we talk about in Jesus Christ. And we get a veiled look of it right now on this side of the cross and this side of glory, and it's amazing. I don't, that's the one thing I am so excited about when I step into his glory is like the weight of all of that being lifted to never have to be put on us again. So you have the invitation to be a part about what God is doing. This is what he is doing. But the question before all of us is are we Palm Sunday shouting Hosanna and praises of adoration or are we holding God at a distance and saying, you know what, I don't want any part of this. I don't agree with that. Why would God do these things? Because he's not going to allow evil to corrupt his good creation. But the choice is ours if we want to be a part of this. And not only be a part, he wants to use us through that, that we could be useful vessels, that we get to be a voice of hope and grace to invite more people because, again, he wants everybody to have a spot in his house. And he's not going to work around his church right now. He's going to work through it. And we are the church, not the building. We. So God's not going to work around us. He wants to work through us. And so will you surrender your life to him? Is there something that he is asking to say, hey, I want to work through this part if you would allow me? Because you have a platform that I've given you to be a voice of hope to certain people. Because not everybody's going to walk in here and hear Andy lead worship or me speak. But you have a platform with them. They'll listen to you. And are you using your platform to be a voice of hope, inviting people in? Because we know how the story ends. We know what it means not to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care what motivates us for kingdom impact. The hope of Christ, the hellfire brimstone, I don't want anybody to have to endure that. So God, Jesus, in his wisdom, says, I'm going to use the church to invite people not to be a part of this, but to be a part of what I am doing and restoring heaven and earth. So, Father, we love you. We trust you. Even in these hard passages that are deep, they are serious, they are even at times uh, even a confusing, we trust in your plan. And, Lord, we want to be a part of it. That if you're restoring yourself to your creation, we want to be a part of it, Lord. So I lay my life down at your feet once again. And I pray we'd have a church full of people surrendering again their lives to you. Little things that we can go and wander away from. I I pray, Lord, that you would just pull us back again. Fill us afresh. Remind us again of the salvation that we have. I pray that we would rejoice and praise in that salvation. But also know 
that you want to use us. That the gospel, your good news of what you are doing was never meant to stop at us, but to move through us, Lord. So give us that kind of boldness, that kind of courage to be a voice of hope, be a voice of your promise, of your love, and of your truth. And I pray we as the church would always have a heart to invite more people to be a part of your family, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.